In his daily COVID-19 press conference on Friday, April 24th, Governor Cuomo said that New York will report a $13.3 billion shortfall in revenue this year compared with its original forecast, representing a 14% decline in the state's projected receipts. Now, while, the cannab- while legalization of cannabis for adult use in New York will not be the silver bullet New York needs to fully climb out of this economic hole, industry projections suggest that it could play an important role in returning to fiscal normalcy. Here to talk about that today is Jason Klimek, member of the New York State Association's Committee on Cannabis Law and the chair of the Cannabis Practice Group at Rochester legal firm Boylan Code. Jason focuses his practice on cannabis companies as well as startup and small to mid-sized tech companies. He advises clients on entity selection, taxation, regulatory issues, funding, employment matters, and securities transactions. In addition, he advises clients on various complex taxation and federal tax compliance issues affecting business owners within the cannabis industry. Jason has been at the forefront of New York's emerging cannabis law. He has worked with New York legislators, providing analyses regarding taxation and licensing. Jason also volunteers his time as legal advisor to Rock Normal, where he has become a thought leader in the industry. And and if his resume wasn't impressive enough, he's currently running for state senate in New York's 59th district. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Steve. (laughs) Well, you're uh, you're no stranger to this show. We had you on last year when it was Rock Normal Radio, and since then we have a, a much bigger, more diverse, and robust audience. So, for those who aren't quite familiar with you and what you do in the industry, how did you end up working and and you know doing legal services in the cannabis and, and hemp industry? So it kind of started with uh, back in I think about two thousand. Uh, what, 16, 17, something like that, um, started looking through the New York State Legislature bills and discovered the MRTA just kind of hanging out there since about 2015 and um, started reading through that. And with my tax background, I started looking at the tax implications of the bill and I was like, whoa, these are these are way off. Um, And so as I started looking through that stuff, I started looking at the other states as well um, and what their tax rates looked at, what their um, revenues looked like. And as it kind of started to get more and more into this, the whole conversation picked up in New York and we started to see Governor Cuomo coming out with his CRTA and tax rates that pushed the MRTA's tax rates even higher. Um, and so I really started getting vocal about this because I think that, you know, this is a huge potential for New York as we've seen in other states that it's a, uh, helps create jobs. It provides um, additional tax revenue that we'll get into later because you can't totally rely on this, but it's still tax revenue. Um, And so I started, you know, trying to really get across to the legislators, government officials that these tax rates are wrong. They they don't work. Um, And it's it was a difficult conversation because it's a very, very niche issue that takes kind of tax nerds to um, to deal with. But eventually we started getting a lot of traction. And so that's kind of how I started. Um, and then the practice just kind of grew from there to the point where, you know, I was 
one of the only lawyers in certainly Western New York uh, looking at the hemp and cannabis space. And so here we are. Yeah, the tax issue is such a complicated issue with legalization because, you know, you have all these different, you know, avenues where that people are attacking in terms of like advocating for legalization. You have the social and criminal justice issue. You have the agriculture aspect, the small craft business aspect, the sustainability aspect, all, you know, community reinvestment, all these things. But fundamentally, it's so important that you know, when you legalize cannabis, that you do so in a matter that allows all these businesses to thrive and therefore make money for the state and do all these, you know, lofty things that we hope the industry is going to do, like be able to give back to communities that have been hurt by, you know, the war on drugs, and etc. So I want to really kind of break down the difference between the CRTA and the MRTA in terms of, you know, their effective tax rates. You know, you and I were in Albany together a few months ago, uh, testifying in front of the joint legislature legislative budget hearing, pretty much saying, if you implement this uh, program with this tax rate, you're setting yourself up for failure. So can you give an overview of the CRTA versus the MRTA in terms of tax structured implementation? Sure. So um, for the, so let's start with the CRTA, the the newest version of the CRTA um, has uh, the, the tax rate structure that where there's a portion of it that is weight-based and a portion of it that is a flat tax. So the flat tax side of it equates to about a 22% tax. Um, and it's divided up, uh, I think it's 20% local, to, or 20% state, 2% local or something like that. Um, and then... And so the the 20% tax is kind of in line with other states. Uh, it would be a little lower than a lot of other states. But, you know, that's not really where the issue lies. The issue really lie, lies with um, the weight-based tax. And that's the one that we really uh, focused in on. And that was uh, for the weight-based tax. It was um, per gram of trim, they wanted, uh, I believe it was 24 five cents and per gram of flour, it was a dollar. Um, those were markedly different than California's, which California has a very similar system of weight-based plus flat. California's was 10 cents per gram of trim and 25 cents per gram of flour. Maybe it was 30 cents per gram of flour. They actually did it per ounce. Um, so, California came in at about a third lower on the weight-based taxes than New York, and their tax rates were uh, on average between 40 and 45 percent. And they were having, still are, having major issues because of the tax problem. Um, You know, one of the issues with the tax problem is you have this entrenched illicit market. People have been buying cannabis from their local suppliers for I don't know, decades, centuries. Um, And so if you come in with a tax rate that pushes the price, you know, a third higher, twice as high, whatever it is, then the guy down the street that you've always trusted and you've had good experiences with, you're not going to go to the legal market. And so that's the problem we have is that when these tax rates go too high, people don't go to the legal market. The states don't get the revenue they want. The businesses can't survive because they're getting 
nailed on the federal side of things because they can't deduct their expenses. So if they don't have these revenues coming in, um, they're, they, they have no cash. Uh, so that's part of the problem. And so New York came in and said, no, we're going to go a third higher than, than California's. And it just doesn't work out. Um, you know, when we kind of calculated out, uh, we being the New York State Cannabis Growers and Processors Association and I, when we calculated out the margins throughout the supply chain um, and the tax rates, you came in at um, a final retail cost to the consumer roughly twice that of the illicit market. So, you know, the illicit market average is probably around 35, 30, $35 an eighth or so. And uh, the legal the legal cost in New York after all the taxes and, and margins was about $60. And that's that's for flour. Now, if you go into the, the um, concentrate side, which is actually the fastest growing side of the market, the, the expenses, the difference gets magnified because now you're into a manufacturing process. So we, we didn't calculate what the uh, vaporizer side would look like or the concentrate side, but we know that it would be a higher differential. Yeah. And it's like, you know, that's the, my guess is that, you know, as a consumer, you know, I would probably pay uh, more than illicit market price to have a high quality product where I know it's been tested and I know it it follows all the, the quality and safety standards. So it, is there a sweet spot with pricing between, you know, the bottom, you know, illicit market prices and the exorbitantly high legal price, the uh, legal prices? Like, what is that sweet spot? So... Um, funny you mention it because it segues right into the MRTA discussion. Um, so in my analysis, I landed at about a 30% tax rate. That seems to work. Um, Colorado, I think, is probably the best system out there right now. And when you factor in all their taxes, they come in right between 25 and 30%. Um, they do have... So Colorado has a flat tax, 15% and 15% um, if it's totally third-party transactions. So, you know, company A is a cultivator, company B is a processor, company C is a dispensary. If they're selling between each of those, it's a 30% tax. Colorado does something a little closer to New York style where it's there is a weight-based component, but it's not a true weight-based component um, if you're a related party transaction. So let's say company A is both um, or is all three, a, re, uh, a cultivator, processor, and retailer. Um, so what they do is they say they have the market rate of a pound. And so they basically look at what is the average um, amount for a pound and they apply that amount to so that they can tax based on that amount. So like the issue is if you were a related party, you would say, oh, you know, you want to tax me 15%. Yeah, the pound's worth $5. So you can take 15% of $5. Colorado came in and said, no, we're going to take a look at what the average weight is or average amount for that is and then apply 15% to that. So you don't kind of um, take away our taxes. So it's not a true weight-based tax. But um, so that so Colorado comes in, as I digress, <laughs> uh, kind of between 25 and 30%. They have the highest revenue, tax revenue per capita of people 21 and over. Um, 
in the United States of any legal state, they have it's like eighty eight dollars um, per capita. Uh, whereas like California came in at like, I think like eight or $11 or something like that. And, and no state, it comes close to Colorado's. So I kind of honed in on that and I really kind of pushed this up the chain and eventually was meeting with people in the assembly presenting my tax proposal, which was kind of the first in the nation and very complicated. Um, and at the time this was pre coronavirus, literally like right before it was like, early February, um, they were like, you know, if this, this is looking like it's going into the budget. So we basically like have a month and change to get this in. So your proposal is, is, is good, but it's probably too complex for what we're looking at. So I, I said to them, you know, okay, that's fine. I, I totally get it. But I think the most important thing here is that the, the rates in the bill are just too high. They're just, they don't work. So, you know, I suggest this 30% rate. So as it you know comes out right before the pandemic, um, they came out with a revision to the MRTA, the uh, C version, and lo and behold, they had a they had basically got rid of the entire uh, weight based tax and went to a twenty two percent flat tax. It was like eighteen to the state and four percent to localities or something like that. Now, you might say, okay, twenty two is not thirty. Okay, but there's an average sales tax of 8% in New York state, which they didn't exempt it from. So eight plus 22, 30, there you go. So that's kind of where we are right now is this idea that maybe 30% is the right amount. It's frustrating that, you know, we're on, on route and route to be in becoming the 11th state to legalize for adult use, which means we have 10 other states to look at as case studies and what the data continues to tell us over and over is that tax stru structure implementation is foundational to industry success. And there's a lot of really bright people uh, in the executive branch. So what do you think their rationale is with knowing what we know about high tax rates and what it does to the market and what it does uh, in terms of increasing the illicit market? What do you think their rationale is behind a 46% tax rate? Because correct me if I'm wrong, that would have been the highest effective tax rate uh, in the country. Yeah, yeah, no, it definitely would have. I mean, there's no question. Um, just to, I'll, I'll answer your question in two seconds, but just to kind of back backfill what you just said, the highest previous tax rate um, was in Washington state. When they first legalized, they had a 75% rate. Within a year, they collapsed that down to a 37% rate and actually saw their their projection, so they had projected a number, they saw their actual revenue, tax revenue from cannabis, double that projection when they essentially cut the rate in half. So that's kind of where we are right now is, you know, we have seen lower rates, higher revenues. Um, there's Why? obviously a sweet spot. Uh, because people, you know, weren't going to the, the legal market. So they went to the illicit market, but when they lowered the rates, people are like, oh, just kind of like you said, I want a high, I want a regulated product. I want to know what I'm able to get, but I don't want to pay through the nose for it. So when you give that to people, they do go to the legal market. You know, it's just like, uh, think about alcohol. You know, are you going to go to the guy who's distilling, you know, uh, liquor in his basement because he sells it to you for slightly less than the legal market? Or are you just going to go to a liquor store? Um, you know, the, the price differentials aren't that big that you're driving people to the illicit market. 
so, um, you know, that that's kind of the context of this whole thing. So for the for the New York state, one of their things, the reason they were really pushing this weight based tax is because it smooths out revenue for them. So um, what I mean by that is they're not so dependent on price fluctuations in the market. If you're just taking a percentage of the, the, the revenue generated, then if prices of a pound, let's say pr- uh, the price of a pound when the legal market starts out is $3,000. And just you know for quick round numbers, th- let's call it a 20% tax rate. So at $3,000, 20% tax rate, it's like 600 bucks. Now, all of a sudden, you have licenses out there, you have people producing just giant amounts, and just like we saw in the hemp uh, realm, let's say the prices just crater. And now, the government did its projections. They said, okay, you know, we're getting 20% on the average from a $3,000 pound, $600, we estimate X amount of pounds, we're gonna get Y amount of revenue. Now, all of a sudden, let's say that those prices go down to $1,000 a pound. Now they're getting $200 instead of $600. They've just cut their uh, revenue by two thirds. So what the weight-based tax allows the government to do is basically say, we don't care what price it is. The weight is the weight. And we will always get that 25 cents or 30 cents, whatever it is, and a dollar per, per gram of trim. We're always going to get that amount. It's a constant amount. The only variable is how much is sold or not. Um, So that's why they were really pushing it is they really like the revenue smoothing mechanism. But the problem with that is that it it kneecaps the market. So, you know, maybe maybe we can make a weight based tax work, but it clearly needs to be less than the proposed amounts. Well, like I would assume that that was just got to be crippling for small businesses. I mean, if you if what happened here, what happened in Oregon, where they gave out, you know, a virtually unlimited license, that just tanks the market. And if you're still getting priced on a weight-based tax, when your price per pound, like you said, could be as low as four or $500, what does that look like for small businesses trying to, you know, make it in this market? Oh, I mean, it, it, it just, it destroys them. I mean, you basically, so like, you know, uh, cannabis, in, including hemp, so the broad term cannabis, is not a very automated business, especially when you're um, out in when you're doing this for at scale. So what I mean by that is, if you're if you're like a craft cannabis producer, and let's talk let's let's talk about like THC variety at this point, um, and you know you're producing this strain and it has these features and blah blah blah, you're probably at a smaller scale, you can do it by hand, it's not ridiculously labor intensive. Um, but now let's look at the idea of the, uh, the same THC cultivator, except they're doing it more in like the CBD uh, capacity insofar as we don't really care what we're growing. We're just growing for the molecule that we're after, THC. So they're planting acres and acres and acres of of cannabis. They don't care what strain. They don't care. uh, You know, they want it as high yield as possible, but all they're, they're literally after the single molecule. They don't care about terpenes. They don't care about other cannabinoids, nothing. Um, so when you're at that kind of scale, 
there's not great automated um, solutions for harvesting and all that stuff. So they're bringing in massive, massive amounts of people to assist in the cultivation, the, the harvesting, the drying, the trimming, all of that stuff. Those prices don't really fluctuate. You know, hourly labor is hourly labor and there's, you know, a state minimum. Um, so when the taxes start to get too high, you get the market pressure for people from people, you know, not wanting to pay way, way, way over the illicit market from one side and the pressure, you know, from being able to cover your own expenses from the other side. So you're squeezed. You've got this very little margin. And really what could happen is that. Oh, and then there's also a federal overlay on top of that. Section 280E of the federal tax law says if you traffic in a controlled substance, of which cannabis is, that you are denied all deductions except cost of goods sold. So if you're a cultivator, you're probably more or less okay. Um, you can deduct the anybody who kind of touches the plant um, in, for, in order to help it grow. But if you're a retailer, you can't deduct anything except the cost of buying the cannabis. So your mortgage or rent, utilities, labor, non-deductible. So um, the the issue then is is or what will what will probably happen or you know what can happen is that um, these smaller businesses start to go under. Uh, they just can't make it with these types of margins and they have to they have creditors so they have to sell their assets well if you try if you are in dire financial straits you need to sell your assets you're not holding out for the highest amount you're you're getting rid of them pretty much as soon as they as soon as you can so what's going to happen is the biggest businesses these multi-state operators with billions of dollars behind them are going to come in and buy up the assets for pennies on the dollar and now you've consolidated the market and then realistically, because this is just how most government operates, um, they'll go lobby the legislature for lower taxes. Yeah, I mean, that's M&A is just the name of the game in this industry. It's, you know, they see these these distressed assets like your license, you know, these people that can't stay above water. They come in, offer them something relatively sexy, uh, you know, to, to get their assets. And before, you know, one company owns, you know, pretty much everybody. You know, we're seeing that with Canopy. We're seeing that with all those big multi-state operators. But then we're seeing, you know, kind of the the, the negative end of, of, of mass scale cultivation and stuff with, was it Canopy? canopy pulled out is pulling pulled out of the new york hemp market like you're i don't know yep. there's just this fine you know i think we're really starting to realize that cannabis at scale is not a healthy business model because like you said it's labor intensive it's cost prohibitive especially when you're growing indoors i mean imagine the utility costs on a hundred thousand square foot grow facility i mean they're massive you know oh, coupled, yeah you know coupled with you know it, it, based on if your program is in line with the illicit market where people are shopping and it's very hard to stay afloat in this industry so i think we're you you know, we're heading towards that craft cannabis model where, you know, maybe your business isn't going to make a hundred million dollars or a billion dollars, but hey, wouldn't we rather have a thousand, you know, businesses making a million dollars than one company making a billion dollars? I think so. And I think that, you know, with all the headaches that have come with cannabis advocacy in New York, the one promising light at the end of the tunnel is that it seems like all three branches, although they, you know, tend to, to uh, disagree on a few things, which we'll get to in a minute, 
they all seem to want this push for craft cannabis, right? The very similar to the craft beer model, which has profound economic impact on our state. And if the industry is set up appropriately, cannabis can actually have more of an economic impact. So the question is, you know, you know, with New York projecting to have a $13.3 billion revenue shortfall because of the COVID-19 pandemic, realistically, how much of an, you know, an economic impact would legalization have on this deficit? You know, is it uh, how much, you know? So, you know, um, just to step back for one second, I'm going to steal a line from uh, Kaylin Kastetter and Alan Gandelman, uh, co-founders of the NYCGPA, and say, you know, I think we would rather create a thousand millionaires than one billionaire yeah. um, in the cannabis industry. And so I think that's the, the model that we kind of have to go after is, you know, a thousand small businesses can hire a lot of people, whereas one large business can't hire all of those people. Um, so, you know, with, with that in mind, you know, we do have to look at the budget deficit, which I think Cuomo said is today like 13 billion or something like that, that we're looking at. Um, so if we step back in time and look at the uh, Department of Health's initial report that was uh, put out for the 2018 um, legalization effort, that report looked at, and it's very, very conservative, um, looked at just how much money they believe cannabis itself could generate, meaning the sale of cannabis. Um, and that report, I think, averaged, they said, about maybe five to six hundred million, um, maybe a billion at the top end. I, I saw um, an article at one point that was like, it could only generate a billion dollars. I wish I was in a position to be like, only, only a billion. A billion yeah. Uh, but I mean, OK, <laughs> granted, um, you know, a billion out of 13 is is like, what, six, seven percent, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's obviously not the the windfall that the government is looking for but then we step forward a little bit and we see the rockefeller institute of government's report and now what the rockefeller institute did is they looked at it a little bit broader they said okay we're not just going to look at the direct cannabis taxes the the taxes generated off of the transfer of cannabis we're going to look at you know how much do income taxes increase because we have more people that are employed. We're bringing in people instead of losing people. Like, you know, a great example is we have one of the best, if not the best, uh, agriculture school in the world in our backyard, Cornell. And, you know, people, these PhD botanists are graduating Cornell and making, you know, they could look at a job starting off at, I don't know, 70, 80,000, maybe nice living, or they could go out West and make like two to 400,000. Um, you, you tell me which they're going to pick. Uh, and But when they do that, they bring their tax revenue with them. We don't get it. Um, so we gave the resources to the school. The state helped fund that. They used New York State resources. And then as soon as they're ready to start paying us back with tax revenue, they up and leave. Um, we want to keep those people here. It's called brain drain, and it's been a big factor in New York. It's, you know, we used to be like the second largest state. Now we're the fourth. Um so, or maybe the third, I can't remember. Florida kind of fluctuates. Um, so that's that's part of the issue. Um, and uh, so, you know, that's what we're looking at here is, is 
Let's look at the whole picture of how we keep that in. So the Rockefeller report said that we would actually end up um, generating, I think it was like somewhere around like four to six billion dollars. Yeah, um, it was like so low end was like one one point five and the higher the high end was three point four billion. And I'm going to put the stats that report link in the podcast description. It is a incredible report. I think you and I have both referenced it in multiple testimonies and many uh, trips to Albany lobbying. So I'd highly recommend people to go, you know, spend some time and read that because it's a really good report. But anyway, I digress. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, that that's it. And so, you know, suddenly we've gone from, you know, less than 10% of the budget gap to now maybe we're closer to like 25% of the budget gap, give or take. Um, and so, you know, that it's a step in the right direction. But here's what I'm cautioning is, you know, I, I think, I don't, I don't know, I haven't heard this from anybody, but I think, I think it's a reasonable assumption that the state's going to be obviously scrambling to close the budget gap. The federal government doesn't seem super willing to help. Maybe that changes in November. I don't really know. But as of right now, I don't think we can really count on the federal government closing our budget gap. So I think the state's going to be looking for revenue wherever they can. And I think that they're going to eye cannabis and say, you know what, it, it may not be, it may not close the budget gap, but this is going to help. This is going to be revenue that we didn't have before. And, you know, so we need to push this through and the tax rates are just fine because we don't want to lower those tax rates. We need the revenue. I think that's very dangerous. Um, you know, this isn't a, uh, a legalize at all costs. You know, we've waited Certainly, we've waited a, a few years as legalization has become very close, but, you know, realistically, we've waited 80 years. So, you know, can we wait a little bit longer to do it right? Can we press the governor and the legislature to really make sure, you know, we're we're passing a bill that does the best that it can right now? Obviously, no bill is going to be perfect, but, you know, it's a lot harder to change a bill once it's law versus getting the right bill passed. I don't think people understand like how fundamentally important and arguably the most important part of this bill is to all the other aspects we're lobbying for. You know, one of the biggest, most controversial aspects of this was the social equity and really the community reinvestment uh, initiative, where a large portion of the tax revenue goes back uh, to the communities hurt most by the war on drugs. And that is only impactful if these tax revenue coffers are full. But if you create an industry with an you know effective, effective tax rate of 46% and small businesses can't thrive and businesses start to wash out and there's only a handful of players and everybody's shopping in the illicit market. Guess what? There's no tax money collected in the illicit market. And if there's no tax money collected, these community reinvestment coffers are not impactful. So I would argue that can't the tax revenue portion or the tax structure portion is the most important part of the bill because it touch, touches all aspects of, of the of these other lobbying points that we've been you know advocating for for the last couple of years. So. You know, I, I do want to get your professional opinion on two of what I think are the biggest issues that our New York State governing bodies can't really seem to agree on and what you think the your opinion would be the best option for. So the first one is, how do you think opt-out opt should, should be handled? Be handled? Um, so opt-outs... Um, I, I, I kind of think that, um, you know, it, it, 
My personal preference is honestly to do it more um, at a local level. Uh, so I like that approach. Um, I think that if it's determined at the county level, um, you get into really weird situations where um, the uh, you know you could get into an idea where uh, I don't think this is going to be true, but you know like Monroe County opts out and Wayne County opts in, and so all the tax revenue flows over to Wayne County. Um, also, you know I think individual jurisdictions should uh get to decide what they want to do so you know if um if one little town wanted to or a few towns wanted to opt wanted to stay in the law but the county wanted to opt out is, is that really fair um you know and those towns lose the tax revenue if you're not in it you don't get any tax revenue so i think that that's a big issue um and certainly uh, you know, it was it was one of the issues that caused the CRTA and MRTA. It caused the legalization to not go through last year. That was one of the ones that they were fighting about. Was uh, where does this money go, um, and and how can we opt out or how can we pro provide the opt out? So I'm more of a favor. And just to kind of you know uh, bolster that, alcohol is treated exactly like that, um, where there's local opt out. It's not. Um, by county, it's by locality. Yeah, I I think that you know objectively the best way to do it is locally, and uh, and the government knows that. But I would manage manage it's a bit of an administrative headache. Not only are we going to be in a huge budget deficit, but but we have to build out you know what will be the OCM and all the clerical and regulatory staff. So it's like it's probably going to be expensive and a, and a headache to try to I would imagine to manage it from a local level compared to you know at a county level where there's you know many less counties than there are local jurisdictions but uh they would never obviously admit to that but uh the second and probably the most controversial issue is the uh social equity measures how do you think and really revenue uh allocation how do you think revenue should be allocated? Do you, you know, I, I think that, you know, I've seen both sides of the, the argument where I was really was in the legislative corner for the first couple of years and we were really lobbying for 50% community reinvestment. But in my opinion, I believe that's unrealistic and it's just, we haven't done enough research into exactly how much money we're going to need to spend and where it's going to go. You know, we're already arguing about where the first dollar is going to be spent before the first legal dollar has been made so you know what how do you what do you think is the best solution to the social equity and, and revenue allocation uh, issue so on that i mean i'm a pragmatist i'm a lawyer you know I, I i realize that like compromise is really the name of the game if you draw a line in the sand everybody loses it's, that's just what happens um but i do i do absolutely um agree that you know, there there should be um, a social equity component of it. You know, there's been disproportionately impacted communities for the last 80 plus years, uh, specifically due to the war on drugs. They and they don't have those those communities don't have the access to capital. You remember, this is federally illegal. Banks aren't giving you money. So either you need to bootstrap this yourself or you need to have some rich friends who are going to invest in you. Um, most poor communities don't have those options. So there does need to be that component. Now, 
I agree that 50% was just, it was a goal, but it's not what you go to the table with as your final answer. You know, when, when we're negotiating a settlement or something like that, we don't go with our first and only offer. You know, it's, it's $50,000 or nothing. No, that's not what you do is you go in with a high number and you settle for what you kind of want or a ballpark. So my my thought is, is let the government, specifically the governor's office, um, because they were the ones really pushing for the uh, allocation to the general fund, um, is let the governor's office kind of have a win in the short term. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, go in with a number that says, OK, you know, we'll allocate 10 percent to uh, the uh, community reinvestment fund or something like that. But let's have it ratchet up as we get higher tax revenue. So when we hit the first billion dollars in tax revenue, um, you know, maybe that amount, the allocation goes up to 15 or 20 percent. As we hit the next several billion, it goes up to 30 percent, all the way up to 50 percent. So that you give the governor a sh- a a win in the short term. And then by the time you're at 50%, it's been so long since that negotiation happened. Nobody really cares at that point in terms of like whether it's a political win or not. Like it's just, it is what it is. So in the end, everybody kind of wins and gets their point. And that's the whole thing of, uh, you know, compromises. Eventually everybody wins. But if you're going to stick hard to one thing, as we saw in the end of, you know, the, 2018 2019 legislative session nobody won because legalization didn't pass yeah it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game i really like that uh that idea of doing kind of like a almost like a uh, success fee or a uh i'm drawing a blank but like a you know based on how well the industry does we change the tax allocations based on the industry you know if you're bleeding out the industry from you know from day one with all this tax revenue, you know, there are going to be a lot of administrative costs that come with starting a brand new organization, right? And all the clericals, it, it, it is going to be a, a huge expense. So I really like the idea of kind of let's set benchmarks and, you know, maybe the first year we do 500 million, you get 10%, 750 million, 15% and work up. I think that's a great idea. Um, you know, whether they go with that uh, is, is to be determined. So, um, I want to talk about your, you know, before we wrap up, you know, you have made a, a, a multiple big moves in the last couple of years, you know, legal to cannabis law and now into the state or to the political uh, scene running for state senator. Why'd you decide to run? Um, really, it came down to having a voice in the district. Um, you know, we've had basically no choice in our senator since 2010. Um, That was the last time he faced an actual opponent. Um, So it was about complacency. And, you know, uh, I think that that's it's wrong. We're we're democracy. We we deserve a choice. And in 2018, it was him versus blank and blank got 30 percent of the vote. So clearly there are a number of people out there who want a choice in the district. And, you know, I, I've heard anecdotally, I've heard this directly from constituents, um, Republican constituents, I may add, um, that he goes around. So the, the, the current senator is a Republican. Um, he goes around telling his constituents that he's just a warm body in Albany. 
And that's not what we need. It doesn't matter if you're in the minority. You should be fighting like hell for your district. Um, And, you know, whereas I, I know this for a fact that an assembly member told me that he specifically put my Propose my tax proposal, my cannabis tax proposal, in front of the set, uh, assembly majority conference, and said, "This is a good proposal. We should pay attention to this." So I'm not an elected, and I'm getting more recognition in Albany than this guy is, and so I think that that's that's why I want to give a voice to the district that hasn't really had a voice in a long time, and certainly hasn't had a choice. Um, and you know, I have this. Uh, first of all, so the cannabis, you know, it, it's a big farming community. Um, the district encompasses like a fraction of Monroe County. Uh, and then the biggest parts of the district are Livingston County, uh, Wyoming County, and then um, pretty rural parts of Erie County. Um, so, you know, those are huge farming communities that really could benefit from cannabis, things like that, and benefit from a stronger voice. Um, You know, one of the things I do besides my cannabis practice is I have a corporate practice where I focus on startups, small, mid-sized businesses, and, you know, bringing these businesses to Rochester, keeping them in Rochester. You know, a lot of my district doesn't even have access to real broadband. Um, how do you keep people in the district? How do you keep people near their families if you can't even video conference? And, uh, you know, we're in a pandemic where everybody's video conferencing. Imagine being basically cut off from the rest of the world because you don't have broadband. Um, you know, we need an advocate for that. We need somebody who's going to be tough on uh, the, the Internet service providers to get broadband out to these rural communities. We need people who are going to support the right, uh, you know, the, the right causes. Um, it, it's important to do all that stuff. And, and we need somebody who the other side is actually going to listen to. Um, you know, right now, the, the, the tone is, you know, you can have a voice at the table, but you got to come to us and you got to be willing to compromise. Um, you know, our senator voted against the budget bill during covid he voted against the COVID paid sick leave. How do you do that? How do you look, well, because he doesn't look anybody in the eye, but how do you look somebody in the eye who is sick from COVID and say, sorry, buddy, I don't think you should get paid from your job. Yeah, you know, why? That doesn't make any sense. Why would you vote against something like that? Uh, because he, I'm pretty sure he feels safe. Um, you know, I, 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 I think that's the, I think that's true. Um, but then again, I did hear from certain people that his office reached out to, uh, people within my orbit and asked me not to run. So I don't know how safe he does feel, but, um, my guess is that he feels pretty insulated. And so do these votes really hurt him? I don't know how much are people really paying attention? I mean, honestly, you know, if not for our efforts and our interactions with legislators, could you name your state senator? I imagine most people couldn't. No, not until we, I started, you know, getting in a lot of the advocacy scene. No, I didn't have any idea where, where my local officials were. And I would assume that most people, especially, you know, if they are in communities where they don't have, you know, access to internet and all the, you know, stuff that we do, they probably even have less than an idea. So it's, uh, yeah, it's good to, you know, it's it, your, your district, you know, you are running as a Democrat and your district is, is heavy red. Um, and unfortunately, we are very uh, sp- politically split nowadays. But I think, and this is, you know, 
my opinion, but I think cannabis and hemp and, you know, kind of the agriculture side of cannabis provides a really uh, promising bridge between the left and the right. What do you, do you agree? I agree from a constituent point of view. Yeah, because it, it brings in farmers, it brings in small business, it brings in social equity. I think it's a great bipartisan issue. And on that point, uh, the senator is on record as a former law enforcement officer saying he is adamantly opposed to legalization. So, you know, yeah, I think it is a bipartisan issue, but a lot of people won't vote like that if they're legislators. I mean, the biggest pushback we've seen in the legislature has been from the Republicans. Um, they're the ones that are most hostile to it, even though they tend to represent the farming communities that would most benefit from it. Yeah, that's the whole thing is like everything has become so hyper politicized nowadays, you know, especially cannabis. But in reality, you know, think about like like basic Republican talking points, jobs, agriculture and economy. You know, three of the most quantifiably compelling points of cannabis legalization. Yet the Republican Party in New York State came out entirely against legalization. It makes no sense to me. You know, everything. Uh and let me throw out there too that um, uh, the, um, that this is a way to raise tax revenue without raising taxes on any person. Um, you know, we need more taxes, and the the option is not to raise New York State taxes. We already pay ridiculously high taxes. Um, this is a way to get tax revenue out of essentially thin air. Let's hope that they uh, they bite on it because it's something that uh, I'm ready for. I'm sure you're ready for. I'm sure the you know cons rest of the New York State constituency is ready before considering we consistently poll at like above sixty percent approval for cannabis legalization. So, unfortunately, I think that we were really on the cusp of legalizing with the budget session, but we're derailed from COVID. Um, mm -hmm. I think that there is a silver lining to this because ramming through a, a bill that's not prepared and that has that exorbitantly high tax rate is not, you know, legalizing is not legalizing. We can do it right or we cannot do it at all. And quite frankly, I'd rather wait and do it properly uh, than do it the wrong way. So, uh, Jason, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're obviously a wealth of knowledge. I look forward to hopefully getting back to session and, and advocacy work whenever we can and get into Albany. Uh, but for right now, where, where can people reach out to you for questions about their business or advocacy questions or questions about your Senate race? What's the best way to get in touch with you? Um, so, you know, thanks for having me on. This is, this is great. Um, it's been a while. Uh, so to get in touch with me, um, the best way is email me through my law firm. It's a uh, J clinic at boylancode.com B O Y L A N C O D E.com. Um, happy to talk to anybody, uh, about their issues. Um, also, you know, I do, um, uh, I am involved with Hemp Lab. Um, so if you haven't heard of Hemp Lab, New York Hemp Lab, um, check them out. I am one of the, uh, uh, I will be, I think, rolling out some uh, initiatives there with um, what they're doing in terms of reaching out to the business and farming communities and things like that. So, you know, um, find me, reach out. I'm very accessible and just kind of, you know, want to talk to the communities about this and um, really see this industry thrive. 
Yeah, right on. And I'll make sure I put all your contact information in the podcast description so people can uh, reach out to you right from there. So again, Jason, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, everybody, I hope you're staying safe and healthy. This has been another episode of Steve's Cannabis Show, and we'll see you next week. Thanks again.